0: Coming up is a podcast brought to you by the dedicated and diverse volunteers at 3CR. Just a quick message before you get there. For the month of June, we're asking listeners to donate to the station to help us keep going. In 2023, we're asking our community to stay tuned, stay radical. We rely on the generous donations of Community to Survive. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate and show your support for community-owned and community-run media. Thanks for your support and happy listening. 3CR's annual Radiathon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community controlled, and focused on people rather than profits.
1: Well, welcome to the Anarchist World this week. Courtesy of the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. It is broadcast to almost 20 radio stations across the country via the Community Radio Network and also to 4ZZZ in Brisbane. It comes to you from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. The program is produced by Kelly Whitworth. you've got any problems, don't ring me. Annoy Kelly. My name's Joseph Toscana. I'm hosting the program. Anarchism. Anarchos without rulers. What gives rulers the ability to determine the lives of billions of people as we see around the world today? Inequalities in power and wealth. How do we overcome this? By cutting off their feet. Not metaphorically, obviously, because there'd be a lot of feet we'd have to cut off. Metaphorically. And their feet are that inequalities in power and wealth. So the only struggle is the struggle to share power, possibly through direct democratic means, and the struggle to hold wealth in common and use it for the common good. It is the most conservative political philosophy ideology on the planet. We're not about denigrating people because they speak a different language, because they've got a different sexual identity, sexual preference, because they come from a particular... They are a different colour. We're not about that. That's radical shit. That's the type of radical shit you see today. We're not about nationalism. You know, we're not about country. We're not about God. We're about other human beings working together to survive on the planet. Very simple concepts. Maybe our tactics, a little bit radical, because obviously those who enjoy, have a monopoly on the use of force, to maintain their authority, will continue to use that force to try to derail any attempt to uh, take away their power and wealth. So that's what anarchism is about. So if you're involved in those struggles, well, I've got some bad news for you. The mark of Cain is on your forehead. You're an anarchist. Political momentum. Now, political momentum is everything. I don't know if you understand what political momentum is, and I think a lot of people understand. I mean, this, you know, fast and furious age, you do one protest and you think you're going to change the world. It doesn't happen that way. Political momentum is about creating a situation where you can, over time, build up a movement around a particular issue now currently we are involved in a particularly interesting struggle with the Victorian state government and other state governments around the country and the Commonwealth government regarding public housing and the privatization of public housing and this struggle has been going on for the last six years currently We are involved in a struggle with uh, somebody called Margaret Kelly. Now, Margaret Kelly lives on the Barrack Beacon Estate in Port Melbourne, and she's facing eviction. Most of the other residents have been removed, and she will... Eventually, the state will take the velvet, the iron fist out of the velvet glove and force her out of the Barrack Beacon estate. But this is not just about Margaret Kelly, and Margaret Kelly makes this point over and over again. This is about increasing public housing stock, this is about reversing the privatization of public housing, this is about. You know, reversing the privatisation of public housing. This is a struggle that was going to continue whether Margaret lives, continues to live at the Barrack Beacon estate, or whether she's forcefully removed. So we need, we need to be able to continue the push. Now, in order to do this, we will be conducting. A series of rallies regarding public housing. Now, over the last six years, we've been having a vigil on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House every Thursday at midday, and we'll continue to hold those vigils. But every few weeks, we'll be holding a larger rally to support Margaret Kelly and to push the retain, repair, and reinvest philosophy which we expect state and Commonwealth governments to be involved in in terms of expanding the public housing sector every bloody idiot in the world talks about housing stock giving investors more latitude more profit and it just goes on and on and on And then we have people who should know better, talking about social housing, affordable housing, inclusive housing, community housing, which is privately owned housing by another name. You know, And we have a government pushing that agenda. We want public housing. Now, Margaret Kelly has been involved in a two-year struggle not to be removed from the Barrack Beacon estate. We've now reached the pointy end of that struggle. And at midday on Thursday, that's the 1st of June, the first day of winter, We'll be holding another rally on the steps of the Victorian Parliament in Spring Street in order to highlight, that's right, highlight the need for public housing and to support Margaret Kelly. We have had some wins, but very minimal. We are creating the political momentum that is required to put this issue centre Centre and front of struggle regarding public housing in this country. That's what we're doing. So, if you are interested in public housing, remember public housing is everybody's business, and I've explained that over and over again why, and I'll explain it again. In a capitalist society, you need competition. If you leave it to the private sector, there is no competition. You need a strong public sector and a strong private sector, as well as a collective and and cooperative sector, which I'll talk about later on in the programme. But the reality is and the reality is very simple, the reality is that we do not have a strong public sector. If you increase public housing stock, fewer people need to rent. That means more competition. Less, you know, for rental properties, rental prices drop, investors leave the market, sell their property, maybe to the government. As they as they sell those properties, property price at the bottom end of the market fall. So it's a win-win situation. If you've got public housing, limited to 25% of income rental, the rent that is charged, there is more disposable income. To be spent in the community means less poverty. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Now, the Honourable Colin Brooks, the Minister for Public Housing, you know, I've got nothing against the Honourable Colin Brooks. He's a very honourable man, they tell me, and I'm sure he is, has been involved in a little battle with Margaret Kelly, you know, David and Goliath battle. And Margaret just wants to meet the lad and have a chat about the repair about the retain, repair, reinvest policy regarding public housing. Now the Minister, after a little bit of public pressure from us when we blocked the entrances to the Ministry of Housing offices in Lonsdale Street a few weeks ago and generated a minuscule amount of publicity, has responded. Now he has responded and said that he is willing to meet Margaret Kelly on the issue of where she is going to be rehoused. Now, Margaret, after thinking about the situation, has responded to the minister. And normally I don't do this, but I'd like to read out something. I'd like to read out Margaret Kelly's response. And I think we need to understand that right is on our side, side, might, Is on their side, and eventually, right always triumphs over might. The Honourable Colin Brooks, dear Mr. Brooks, twenty second of May, twenty twenty three. Thank you for taking the time to respond to my letter and to my request for a meeting. I am sorry for the delay in responding, but there was a lot in your letter to think about, and it's disappointing that after the meeting we attended with your staff, at the same time, justifications have been repeated. This is not about how things can be justified to the media. It's about people's lives and homes, and that is something your department is meant to care about. Front and centre is the continuing claim that the destruction of the estate is to deliver more and renewed social housing, a statement self-evidently not true when the majority of what will be built is expensive private rentals with a sliver of a privately managed social housing to justify it. It is of little interest to me if the land is leased or sold. Because in 40 years' time, I will not be alive. What is important is that what will be built on public land will no longer be public housing. If this government was confident that these schemes would be supported by the public, you would be announcing it proudly rather than hiding it under smoke screens of vague terminology and motherhood statements. To describe the Barrack Beacon Estate as an end of life site is obviously absurd. Port Melbourne was one of the earliest settlements from Europe in Victoria, and many buildings that date to that time are still standing. To describe buildings as at as at end of life when they are just forty years old is ridiculous. These buildings have heritage value. They are a beautiful example of how good building design can foster community and was designed as part of the Garden City Estate. It has always been a peaceful, safe, pleasant place to live and you you should be looking at it to see why this works so well when so many other housing estates do not. I'm aware that the City of Port Phillip has raised the heritage issues with you in regards to comments about the retain, repair, reinvest report and plans from office, they are not correct and it does not seem that your department has seriously engaged with them. I do not know who the people you are receiving advice from are, but if it is the property developer and developer adjacent members of the Advisory Board of Homes Victoria, I think you should consider the possibility that they may be biased. You describe moving home as difficult and challenging. This is what moving is for people who are moving voluntarily to take up a better job office, move to a nicer home, or move to be closer to family. What we are discussing here is forced relocation taking people from their homes to situations of total uncertainty. I am sorry for the people who naively have moved to what they believe is temporary housing, thinking they will return to lovely new homes at Barrack Beacon in two years. Saying that we have been asked to relocate temporarily is disingenuous when on other projects, no social housing has been built. Five or six years later, you know that only twenty percent of people relocated return, and the main reason for that is is that it has taken so long they've had to make new lives elsewhere. The relocation of the residents of the Barrack Beacon housing estate has had a devastating impact on the health and well-being of many residents, and as far as I can see. There is no follow-up to see how they are doing in their new homes. The plans for Barrack Beacon were kept entirely secret until the news was dropped on residents 12 days before Christmas 2021. And then the pressure to relocate started three weeks later while people were still in shock. Your letter seems to suggest that that you would only be meeting me to discuss relocation options, which suggests that nothing has moved forward since I first wrote to express concerns about the demolition in December 2021. It seems that the strategy adopted by Government and Homes Victoria is to bulldoze this project through regardless. Public housing was meant to provide safe, secure homes, but this if this goes through I will never feel safe in public housing again. The government position may be, may be to proceed with the redevelopment, but that is a position that can change. Many things have changed since the announcement of the redevelopment, with building developments being put on hold all over the country. It is particularly disingenuous that Homes Victoria plans to demolish the estate before a developer is appointed or the community consulted taking away the option for sympathetic, sustainable development forever. The likely income is that the estate will be left as a hole in the ground, as with many other homes Victoria redevelopments. Renovation is the least expensive, fastest way to get people back into their homes. I would like to meet with you to actually engage with our concerns, rather than just try and think of ways ...to combat it in the media. I suggest a meeting at your earliest possible convenience. I hope this finds you well, regards Margaret Kelly. As I said, this is a struggle. It's going to be a long struggle. It has been a struggle for almost over six years... ...and it will continue to be a struggle for public housing. The current housing crisis will push governments across this country to actually reinvest in public housing to spot purchase homes across the country to make public housing a priority and to this and to desist from privatizing what's left of the public housing sector in this country so if you're interested in supporting margaret and supporting the retain, repair, reinvest philosophy regarding public housing, then I suggest you, if you're in Melbourne on tomorrow, that's the 1st of June, the first day of winter, join us on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House at midday to hear the latest developments in the Margaret and in the David and Goliath struggle between Margaret Kelly and the Victorian state government. Listen to the Anarchist World this week. Broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Talking about momentum, political momentum. Now, those of you who are old enough will remember the Republican debate in 1999 and the referendum that was held over 25 years ago. The defeat of that referendum because of divisions within the Republican movement derail that debate derail that debate for over a quarter of a century. And my concerns regarding the, the voice referendum, irrespective of how, you know, reformist you think it is, the fact is that the Australian people have an opportunity to give governments at the state and federal level a green light to pursue a voice, a treaty, and truth-telling. That's what the Indigenous population in this country, the majority, wanted in the Uluru Statement of the Heart. If this referendum fails, it will put back that ability for governments to negotiate treaties to be involved in truth-telling, a quarter of a century. And that is what we are looking at. And those of us who've got long enough memories to remember, political momentum regarding political and social issues is paramount in every struggle, and we need to maintain that political momentum, irrespective of how minor those constitutional changes are. The fact that it's a constitutional, which is the founding document of, you know, of Australia, colonised Australia, is pivotal. It's like the 3rd of June. Now, most of you have forgotten that it's Reconciliation Week. I was involved in a Reconciliation Ceremony, a flag-raising ceremony, beginning of Reconciliation Week on the 27th of May, the 27th of May, was the day that the um, the nineteen sixty seven referendum was held, which uh, transferred responsibility for First Nations people from the states to the Commonwealth government, and that led to the first land rights uh, legislation in seventy two, when the Gurindji were returned their lands, and since then there's been a number of significant issues that have, you know, that have kept First Nations uh, responsibilities first and foremost to deal with that festering sore now reconciliation which we are now celebrating or a few of us are celebrating spans the 27th of May to the 3rd of June now the 3rd of June is Mabo Day now Mabo Day existed three hundred, sorry, 31 years ago I'm getting my facts there, 31 years ago. And Mabo Day this year falls on the 3rd of June, which is a Saturday. It falls on the 3rd of June every year, obviously, but it falls on a Saturday. And the story's very simple. In 1982, Eddie Mabo, who had been um, expelled from his whole island of Murr in the Torres Strait, a Torres Strait Islander. And uh, Grandfather Passy and Father Rice believed that they had rights to land in law. They didn't believe that the legislation that had gone through the Queensland Parliament to deny them those rights was constitutional. And in 1982, Eddie Mabo was working as a gardener at James Cook University in uh, Cairns. He was a man with a sharp mind. Started reading books during the lunch hour, uh, and he believed that the idea of terra nullius that this land had not been inhabited the very basis of colonization in Australia a concept which had been in existence for over 204 years till it was, you know, knocked out in 1992 was like a crap. How could it be terra nullius that nobody owned the land, that nobody had existed? The colonisers could come in, put up a flag, say, "This is ours," you know. Nobody exists. End of story. It's our right. It's our land. It's not yours, although you've been here forty thousand, sixty thousand years. So, the, so the case with sympathetic lawyers. Uh, ...wound through the various courts and ended up in the High Court in 1992. And on the 3rd of June 1992, in a relatively narrow victory, four to three... ...the High Court found that First Nations people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders... ...had rights in land, in law, in European law. And obviously Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders knew they had rights in land from the word go, because they were the victims of colonisation. But what this judgement did, it had buried the idea of terra nullius, that the land belonged to no one. Obviously, there were Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who could prove their continuing association with their land, and there are Aboriginal people around the country who had been forcefully separated from their lands, their children stolen, people assimilated, that they couldn't prove it. So obviously the Mabo decision caused consternation. Those of us who are old enough to remember 1992, I thought the sun was going to collapse, that the earth was going to open up and swallow us all. And if if you do have time, look at some of the idiots who are crowing about how it's the end of civilization in 1992. Now land rights obviously has its limitations and many of those limitations are not due to the High Court decision and they're not due to Eddie Marbo and Father Passy and grandfather uh, Rice. Those limitations are due to a significant degree to the legislation that's been passed since 1992 to water down the Mabo decision and this has been assisted by the mining sector and the corporate sector and to some degree by some indigenous groups. Mabo day the third of June 31 years after the original uh, decision by the High Court of Australia continues to be an important day to mark and celebrate. It didn't achieve everything, but it opened the door. Like the '67 referendum opened the door for the Commonwealth to pass land rights legislation allowing First Nations people to claim land, which they continuously occupied, the 1992 decision opened the door to a wider group. Of Indigenous and First Nation Indigenous First Nations people in this country. So, since 1992, there have been celebrations around the country, and to mark the 10th anniversary of the Mabo Day decision in uh, tw- 20, 2002, one of the largest gatherings of people to celebrate Mabo Day was held here in Melbourne with a family of Eddie Mabo and a number of other people, dancers from the Torres Strait, came here to Melbourne to celebrate that day. Now, in 2002, my late wife, Ellen Jose, was the chair of the Wangai Association, which is the Torres Strait Islander Association, and she spoke at the Melbourne Town Hall at the rally which was held outside the Melbourne Town Hall regarding the importance of that day and why it should be celebrated. And till her death in 2017 almost six years to the day, uh, she organised Mabo Day gatherings. Sometimes they were very small, sometimes they were a bit larger, in Federation Square. Didn't ask permission, just organised the gatherings to mark the day, to mark what had been achieved, to mark what could be achieved in the future. And as if, And she requested that her family... Continue that tradition. As her husband and her children and her friends, we continue that tradition. And this Saturday on the 3rd of June, if you find yourself in Melbourne, join us at midday in Federation Square near the corner of uh, St. Kilda Road and Flinders Street uh, just across from Flinders Street Station, you'll see the flags, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags, and the flagpole will be there underneath the flags. Join us; we'll be there for about an hour to mark the day. You will, you will find that very few people south of Brisbane actually celebrate Mabo Day, and it's been quite interesting this year to see how few people have actually been involved in Reconciliation Week. Events. Th- You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network, and uh, hopefully I'll see you there on Saturday. Let's move on. Keep the corporate sector happy. Mr. McGowan, isn't it? Yeah, Mark McGowan, the Premier, the successful Premier of West Australia, which reduced the opposition to six seats and the Liberal Party to two seats in the West Australian Parliament the last state election, has resigned. And, he, you know, he cites exhaustion. And I understand. It is very exhausting being involved in um, political activity. And it's thankless. When you think about it, it's totally thankless. So, best my best regards to Mr McGowan. Not McGowan. McGowan. But, you see... Mark McGowan had a wonderful strategy which the current ALP Commonwealth Government, led by Mr Albanese, is involved in. And that's a strategy of keeping the corporate sector happy and keeping the media on side. Now, while the Murdoch media dominates thinking and fought Around the east coast of Australia, in Tasmania, South Australia, and the Northern Territory, the Stokes media empire continues to hold sway in West Australia. So, our friend, the Premier, the former Premier, understood that in a corporate-driven society, where decisions that are made in Parliament are related to the direct wishes of those who own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication. It's very important to foster a close relationship. So, it's interesting. The Premier of West Australia, the former Premier of West Australia an exceptionally close relationship with the mining sector, which really didn't feel much pain. It was business as usual during COVID-19, business as usual before COVID-19, increasing profits, little response to Indigenous people's requests for a bigger share of the profits, for the minerals which were extracted from their lands. A very close relationship with the Stokes media went really well, did very well. And if it wasn't for the West Australian seats swinging to the Australian Labor Party during the last federal election, considering how pathetic the Morris-led government had been, the Albanese-led Labor Party would have found itself a minority government having to deal with a restive crossbench in the House of Representatives and the Australian Greens. So, Mr Mel Albanese has taken a tick out of the book of the former West Australian Premier. And if you look at the way the... Albanese-led Labor Party has been negotiating with the corporate sector, the mining sector, the energy sector, the health sector, the aged care sector, early childhood development sector. You can see that they're using the same tactic. Keep the corporate sector happy. Don't arc up against The Murdoch media, irrespective of the type of shit that they like to smear around the country, and keep them happy. Keep them happy. Don't pass any legislation that's going to really resolve any major issues in this country as far as wealth distribution and wealth creation is concerned. And guess what? And guess what? You can continue governing. And that's the key. The alternative Liberal Party, masquerading as the Australian Labor Party, has learned its lessons well. It learned its lessons from the last federal election when the Bill Shorten-led opposition raised a very few reformist alternatives to the current financial economic system. They were lampooned in the Murdoch media and the Stokes media, and they found themselves losing the unlosable election. That's right. Losing the unlosable election. So they've learnt their lesson well. Keep the corporate sector on side. Keep the corporate dominated media on side. Continue to gild the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And guess what? Business as usual, increasing inequality, And nothing really changes. There's only one problem with this tactic. The Australian Labor Party is beginning to lose its mojo in its heartlands, like the Liberal Party lost its mojo to the Teals in its heartland, losing unlosable seats. The LP, considering its reformist brand of politics, is facing the same proposition, irrespective of how smooth media relations are kept. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Scanum. I'm hosting today's program Free and Fair Elections in Turkey. Hmm? 66% inflation, 50,000 dead in an earthquake. ...and President Erdogan gets re-elected. Interesting, isn't it? Yes, there were three elections. Everybody was free to vote. But were they fair? And in many regards, it's a little bit like Australian politics. During an election campaign, you only hear one side. The difference is that in Turkey, the media is basically controlled by the government... It's publicly owned. In Australia, it's owned by the corporate sector, which obviously has a different agenda. So were they three? Yes. Were they fair? Obviously not. So we'll see what happens. It's the same around the world. We saw it in Britain during the Brexit, was it Leave, the European Union campaign? We see it everywhere. Three and fair elections. Three and fair elections. Now, I'm interested in the Australian economy because obviously the economy has to, you know, we all are part of it, aren't we? You know. This could be... And this is what makes me broadcast every week and get involved in different activities and organise different activities. This could be the greatest country on the planet, the greatest country since we left the African veldt. 1500 of us, and now we've colonised the earth and brought it to the brink of disaster. We could be an example to the rest of the world We have 25 million people living on a resource-rich continent. 25 million people living on a resource-rich continent. And during the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation era, we have seen changes in this country which were unimaginable 40 to 50 years ago. We have seen the creation of private charities to raise money to send Australian kids to public schools. We have seen a growing inequality. All you have to look at is the housing situation today. We have seen the trashing of the public housing sector. The understaffing and underfunding of the public health sector. The understaffing and underfunding of the public education sector. We have seen the introduction of the Holy Trinity in economics. Hex debt, wage slavery, superannuation. Three crosses that Australian people are forced to bear, which have been forced to bear since federation, hex debt who carries a hex debt those students that whose parents cannot pay fees up front fancy starting off your working life with a debt of 40,000 50,000 100,000 which is indexed to inflation fancy starting your working life then we have wage slavery. What do I mean by wage slavery? We've introduced legislation and policies in this country which has basically removed the right to strike. Except during an enterprise bargaining agreement period and if you can jump the hoops, you may be able to strike for an hour. Hmm? Wage slavery. Introduce temporary workers into this country to keep a lid on wages and to destroy the trade union movement. Then we have superannuation, the biggest con since time immemorial. In many regards, superannuation is a little bit like the caste system in the Hindu religion. If you're born a Brahmin, you die a Brahmin, your kids become Brahmins. If you're rich, you use this country's superannuation-friendly laws to enrich yourself. If you're poor, 12% or 10% of your wages goes into, um, you know, superannuation. The superannuation funds are used then to fund instruments which oppress you. The Holy Trinity. The Hex debts, wage slavery, superannuation. And why is this? Why is it so, would say Professor Julius Sumner Miller. Why is it so? Because we have put... Our eggs in one basket the private investment for private profit basket that's what privatisation has been about it's been about giving away profitable government assets to the private sector and what we have seen is a total reduction in competition so in a mixed economy you need a private sector You need a public sector and you need a sector based on collectives and cooperatives. Nobody gets rich in a collective or cooperative but you are able to have secure, stable employment. And having a strong collective and cooperative sector means that you've got real competition. Having a publicly owned bank means you've got real competition in in, in a capitalist marketplace. We have allowed Every important sphere of human activity to be dominated by corporations whose mantra is to create ever increasing profits for their major shareholders, irrespective of the human, social, environmental, community costs. That's the problem. I'll give you a few examples. Let's move on. The Price, Waterhouse, Cooper. Saga, Nothing new It's been exposed now But it's nothing new It's been happening for the last 40 years What I call the fox in the chook house syndrome The fox in the chook house syndrome Any of you have had chooks Had a fox come into the chook house Foxes like to kill And they normally kill all your chooks They'll drag one away But they'll kill the rest of them it's their nature. I've got nothing against foxes. It's their nature. You know, if you're going to have a chook shed, you need to take precautions to ensure that foxes can't get in. If you don't, well, they're going to get in. So what have we done with our public service at the state and federal level? We have invited the fox to come in to the chook shed, to come into the public service. In order to maintain ideological purity, successive governments have appointed private-owned corporations whose major responsibility is to make a profit for their major shareholders into the public service. As consultants, who are paid enormous amounts of money, billions of dollars every year, and companies like Price Waterhouse, Cooper, invited into the tax department, invited into the treasury, invited into the defence forces to provide consultancy work. And if the government says of the day, this is what we want, guess what the report which comes out by these privately paid consultancies exactly what fits the government's ideological perspective. So we have eviscerated the public service, not in terms of numbers, but in terms of the advice they're able to give, in terms of their responsibilities to provide unbiased advice to ministers and governments. We have invited that fox into the chook shed and when the fox starts eating the chooks and makes a bit of a buck, we start crying. Oh, woe is me. Oh, woe is me. Now, I'm sure any of you who've got chooks are not going to get a fox and say, excuse me, they'll go on Gumtree and say, fox wanted for my chook shed. I want a fox for my chook shed. Well, that's what we've done at the state and federal level. We have allowed the very organisations that make a buck by exploiting people into the organisations, the public service, which theoretically is there to protect the interests of the people in that particular sphere of influence. We have gone out of our way to invite the fox into the Commonwealth chook shed and into the state chook sheds around the country today. No wonder during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic in Victoria, nobody owned up to the fact, after an intensive investigation, which found nothing, they couldn't find who, nobody owned up to the fact that they actually organized for private security firms to do health work and no wonder the virus escaped no wonder the fox in the chook shed syndrome that's what we've got it's extraordinary and what we've been told today well there are so many foxes in the chook shed we can't eradicate them we need them to be there to provide that advice to governments. Well, I've got some advice for you. Macquarie Island, all the foxes were removed. Very roughly, but they were removed. And now the local flora and fauna, the rabbits were removed, the foxes were removed, is flourishing. And it's the same with us. Unless the fox... Or the foxes, and they are more than one fox, unless the foxes are removed from the state-based public service and the Commonwealth public service, nothing will ever change. Let's move on. Anti-protest laws in South Australia. You see, this is the beauty of living in Australia. No constitutional protections for the individual from the arbitrary exercise of state power. I'm sure I say this shit every week. Another example, obstruction laws, $50,000 fines, three years imprisonment, or was it three months, sorry, three months imprisonment, passed both Houses of Parliament at the state level in South Australia, everybody's happy, no more obstruction, and if they do, we'll drag them away. Well, I think we've now reached the situation, this is where the trade union movement made a mistake, Those of you old enough to remember the the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who marched when Clary O'Shea, the tramways workers union delegate who was jailed in Victoria in the late 60s, you know, for being a union member and been involved in strike activity. Sometimes you get to the situation when the only way forward to highlight the stupidity of many of these new new laws that have been introduced into Commonwealth and State Parliaments over the last 30 to 40 years, is to actively, actively resist them. And if it means going to jail, it means going to jail. Because sometimes that's the only way. It's the only way to actually resist these laws anti-protest laws, you got them in New South Wales, you had them in Queensland, you've got them in Victoria to some degree, and the list goes on and on and on. If you have no constitutional protection for the individual from the arbitrary exercise of state power, don't be surprised when the government of the day uses its parliamentary majority to remove so-called rights that you thought you had. You don't have any rights apart from the right to choose your religion. You've got the right to starve. You've got the right to be homeless. You've got the right to be bankrupted. But you don't have the right to protest. You don't even have the right to freedom of speech under our constitutional arrangements, except during election campaign. That's what the High Court found. Couldn't find. Couldn't find it. No freedom of speech. And it's no accident When the Australian Constitution was formed, when the debates occurred for 10 years, it was elected to move in a position which actually denied individuals right. The Australian Constitution is nothing more than a, you know, a little ditty, a little bit of a, you know, little ditty between the states and the Commonwealth Government. Extraordinary. So, remember, I keep saying and you keep thinking I'm an idiot. If there was a majority in both houses of parliament, we could vote; they could vote to pass a law to imprison every two-year-old with blue eyes because they're the spawn of the devil. Because we believe, if we believe that, and it'd be constitutionally correct in this country. And if you think I'm wrong, prove me wrong. Let's move on. The green corporate counter-revolution. It's the same names, isn't it? AGL, Toyota, electric cars, you know, um, Holden, Ford, whatever. Origin Energy, the list goes on and on. I don't want to pick on a particular corporation. But the great green revolution. Well, it's not a green revolution. A green revolution would be based not on private investment for private profit, as it's been sold today, It would be based between a struggle between decentralisation and centralisation. And what we are seeing is the centralisation of power. Not just political power, not just economic power, but the power to determine the fate of a nation and of a people instead of working to create decentralised energy systems which are controlled by local communities, we are now, the Green Revolution is about creating huge centralised energy production facilities which are not owned by communities but which are owned by the same corporations which brought you the climate emergency. And we all think this is forward this is forward thinking that if you've got lots of cash you can buy an electric car you haven't gotten lots of cash well bad luck charlie you know you got lots of cash you can put up solar panels If you haven't got the cash bad luck charlie bad luck you know gertrude bad luck this is not a green revolution this is a extension of capitalism private investment for private profit I mean, these people would sell you their grandmother if they could. More importantly, they'd sell you their grandmother's organ if there was a buck to be ma- organs if there was a buck to be made. That's the nature of capitalism. If we can't tame the beast, we need to be able to control it, and you control it by creating a three-tier economy in a capitalist society, a strong public sector, a strong collective and cooperative sector to actually compete against a corporate-dominated private sector. You'll be listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. Join me tonight if you're in Melbourne, 31st of May. You could watch the Queensland versus New South Wales State of Origin on your TV or go to the place in Adelaide to watch it. Or you can come to the Footscray Hotel, 48 Hopkins Street, 4A, 3Style, interactive comedy spectacular and the key is interactive nobody turns up i'll be talking to myself free entry donation to exit so come along yes it'll be a great night a great night to meet like-minded people the idea of organizing these events is basically to get people together like-minded people together listen to the anarchist will this week next week and don't forget the radio font on the 14th of June. We need your support to continue broadcasting for My another
0: election. year. Of construction.
1: An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week, Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse. 10 a.m. every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist Wall this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events.
0: Poisoning their brainwash minds. Oh, Lord, yeah! Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Fierce, independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep radical voices and issues on the airwaves. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Call the station on 039419 8377. Or drop in at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. Did you enjoy listening to that podcast? 3CR is a community radio station, and you, the listener, are a part of that community. Right now, it's our Radiothon. We need you to pitch in with a few dollars to keep the station going. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donations really matter.